Well, thank you, Carrie. And I thought about what Lloyd said last week. This is one of those seasons that we'll look back and say, do you remember when? Do you remember when Carrie Murphy brought a pig on the stage? Yes, because you were here. And I'm glad you didn't miss that. And I want to tell you, if you're new, or really, if you're not new, this is a really great time to be a part of Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, There actually is something significant that's been happening, and we're just seeing it over and over and over throughout this entire series and and beyond. Honestly, the last year has been a hard year uh, to be a church. It's been a hard year for many of us, and yet God has been showing up in some unexpected and beautiful and quite frankly, very generous ways. And that's why this series came to be. This was not in our strategic plan. But as we, as an elder team uh, in January, kind of just asked ourselves, where's God on the move and how can we join him? The answer that he gave us to that question is looking back and seeing these unexpected moments of generosity that God has just been um, um, putting on us individually. Some of the stories that you all have, us as a church corporately, it's been all over. Think about the global Christmas offering, largest offering ever given, ever taken, ever received, which goes right out through our doors. We don't keep it. It goes out to our global partners all around the world. That was this year, in the year of the pandemic, this past Christmas, blew us away. Um, Anonymous family gave us $100,000 to put a new playground in right here. Just so we just want to bless the kids. No strings attached. We just think they need something new and different. And and they they did. Those kids have been using that little old playground uh, for a long, long time. And it was time for something new and beautiful. And that's been a big blessing. And then I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, but a different family came and just said, listen, we've had a big financial event. We've got $500,000 that we believe God wants us to give. We don't know how you want to use it, but can we have a conversation with you about that? The more we prayed about that, the more we saw an opportunity where God, we felt God was leading us is to use their gift as a lead gift to say, what if we could eliminate the mortgage at Fellowship Bible Church, which was $1.6 million through their $500,000 gift and then some other funds we already had set aside, we're able to get it down to 800,000. And so that's what we've been working on together. The opportunity in that, is that we will save $250,000 in interest payments. It's a quarter of a million dollars that we won't have to ever pay if we're able to pay this off now. Not only that, but $300,000 a year from our budget, which is what we had designated for principal and interest, is freed up. And so we've been dreaming about what we can do with that money. And all of our dreams are external. Like all of our dreams are, how can we bless people? How could we, like, can you imagine if we were able to increase our benevolence fund exponentially? You know, what if we could reappropriate funds to help our mission bust outside our walls and help people find Jesus? Like, not just people coming here, right, but people in our community that are in really hard spots and really hard places. This, this is what God, we believe, is calling us to. And we've been asking the question, what happens if we collectively as a body give more than $800,000? And what God has put on our heart is we are not to keep any of the money that comes in other than what we need to zero out this mortgage. And so whatever is given, if money is given beyond the mortgage, it's all going to go out. And through God's grace, we have a church partnership with a Spanish-speaking congregation not far from here, a small little church called El Shaddai. They are raising money right now to get back on their original church property that they have been displaced from for 11 years. It was destroyed in the 2010 flood and they have been outside of their home for 11 years and they are um, in the process right now. Could God use us in some way to be a part of them coming home? Because here's the thing, guys. 
as excited as I am about the possibility of zeroing the mortgage, I am way more excited about what God may do in us as he sets us free and, and, and makes us more generous. Here's a way to think about it. The goal is not the mortgage. The goal is the glory of God and generous hearts. That's the goal. And so we're asking you to join us. And as you heard from Carrie, we're asking our kids to be a part of this too. And it really has been a blast. Last week, Lloyd taught the biblical theology of generosity. It was a great message. If you missed it, you can go on the web and, and catch up. Um, what, what Lloyd said last week is generosity is God's predisposition. In other words, God doesn't even have to choose to be generous. He is in his nature generous. In fact, generosity is one of his most fundamental attributes. It's what makes God God, and, and, and we see this all around us, the creation itself is overflowing, is bursting with abundance. And when we have this theological mindset that Lloyd taught last week, that our God is a generous father, that gives us the faith to open our hands and our hands don't have to hoard stuff anymore. God's generosity can just come right through our hands and into the hands of other people. And so that's where the generosity of God will take us. This week, we're going to keep developing the, the, the theology of generosity by looking more at us. And specifically, we're going to explore the complex relationship that, that we human beings have with the generosity of God. In other words, we're going to ask this question this morning, what are the implications for us that God is so generous? How are we to live in a world of overflowing abundance that Lloyd talked about last week. I'm not exaggerating when I say that this topic may be one of the most relevant, important, maybe uncomfortable, but life-giving things we could talk about together. Let me set it up with an illustration. Many of you know this. There are places in the world right now where it's dangerous just to be a Christian like physically dangerous to be a Christian. There are places where, where Christians are being imprisoned and beaten, uh, tortured, and, and even killed. Like that's literally happening right now. If I told you this morning that three months from now, we were all gonna get on an airplane, or I guess it would take more than one, and we would fly, we we're gonna go to one of these dangerous places. Uh, my guess is we'd all be a little nervous about it. I would be nervous about it, no question. I'm sure we would pray for safety, probably pray more than we normally do. I bet we would take precautions. I, I'm sure we would plan ahead. We might even go through some scenarios and, and sort of train together. Say, if you're asked this question by the authorities, you know, here's how you are to answer. We would be alert. We would have a plan because that's what you do when you go into a dangerous place. What if I told you that right now we are living in a place that God would say may very well be more dangerous to us than any of those places. More dangerous to us because the threat of living in the place we live is not so much to our physical lives or our freedom. The threat is to our souls. The threat's to our, the vitality of our hearts, the, the, the vitality of our spiritual lives. 
And guys, this is not just sort of an attention-grabbing, you know, sermon opener. (laughs) I'm serious about this. I've been wrestling with the text that we're going to study this morning for a couple of weeks. It's, it's, It's been pulling on me. It's been stretching me. I'm serious about this because God is serious about this. So today we're going to talk about the problem of abundance. In other words, we're going to talk about the danger of living in a land of plenty, living in a land of milk and honey, which is exactly where we find ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bible, if you brought one here, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'm going to read uh, three different sections of verses. We'll cover almost the whole chapter, but we'll do it in chunks. Let me give you some context while you're turning there. The Hebrew people are about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wilderness. You better believe they're excited. And Moses, you know, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. His time ended and Joshua's time was beginning. But before Moses died, he gathered all the people together and he reminded them of the covenant promise they have with Yahweh, the one true God. He's about to read in the covenant. In fact, that's what most of Deuteronomy is. It's the covenant of the people, right? Right before they go into the promised land. And Moses also says this. Look in Deuteronomy 8, beginning of verse 6. We'll read 6 through 10. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a Hebrew man or woman or child hearing these words from Moses and and all you've known up to that point is just fighting for survival, you know, and getting water where you can and and God literally providing one day at a time kind of food, you know, and it was this manna that that they would just kind of bland, uh, doughy-like bread substance that God would provide for them. And guys, I would be excited to go into this land. And Moses is describing it in a way that's just like, oh my goodness, that such a place exists? What's interesting to me as I've studied this text is how similar the description here in Deuteronomy 8 of the promised land is to the description we see in Genesis 1 and 2 of the Garden of Eden. Both places, the Garden and the promised land, are places overflowing with abundance that God prepared for his people and gave to them. In both places, the message to God's people is essentially the same. All your needs here will be met and then some. It's not just basic provision. It's provision to overflowing. You notice the reference to honey. You don't have to have honey. Honey's just delicious. And pomegranates and and copper. You know, copper was for making beautiful things and, and durable things. You know, things, none of this is all necessary. It's superfluous creativity that God has put into this land. Now, 
Here's what's interesting about this. Israel's story is a microcosm of humanity's story. Israel's story is mankind's story in miniature. In the Old Testament, Israel represents God's relationship with mankind. At least that was God's intention for Israel. So when Israel entered the promised land, theologically what's going on is it represented humanity's return to the Garden of Eden. I think Moses would have been very conscious of this. He was at the end of his life. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the last book he wrote. He's gonna be dying soon. He sees this as a completion of the circle of the, of the, of the book, of the story, of the Pentateuch. Going, God's people going back into a land, a flourishing land, abundant land, Garden of Eden. And so, put on your theology brains for a minute. What happened last time God's people were in a good, abundant garden? Someone like literally shouted out. They blew it. Yeah, Paul, they blew it. That's a good way to put it. Specifically, human beings living in a place where all their needs and wants were met began to distrust God's good intentions for them. They began to think maybe he's holding out in the garden, human beings went outside of God's provision because of a lack of trust. And they broke his command and sin entered the equation. Or they blew it. It's no surprise then that the very next thing we read in Deuteronomy 8 is a warning. Don't repeat that mistake this time in the garden. Look at verse 11, Deuteronomy 8, 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up that's a Hebrew um, figure of speech. It's a Hebrew idiom that means you become prideful. Your, your heart is lifted up. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. This is a really important passage. Lots of reasons why. I want to talk about two reasons why this passage is so important. Number one, this passage reveals the core danger of living in a land of abundance. Here it is. The danger of living in a land of abundance is that it causes us to forget God. That's exactly what this text is saying. He said, be careful lest you forget God. In fact, I'd say living in a land of abundance is not just a possibility of a danger of forgetting God. It's a certainty unless we carefully and consciously choose a different path. 
Why is that? Why is it that we can't have good things? You know? Why is it that, that blessing and abundance and wealth and fame and prosperity and good things and sweet treats, why, why do these things corrupt us to such a level? Here's why. In our fallen state, our hearts are not whole. And so we will grab onto anything we think can shield us from pain and discomfort and insecurity. And, and so when we're in a place where there's a lot of things around us, a lot of things to grab onto, we will just grab and grab, thinking the more things we have, the, 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 the better we feel. And what it turns into is the more things we have, the less we think we need God. That's how this works. This is what Moses was warning them about. Here's a way to think about it. A fragmented heart living in a land of abundance is a disaster. You don't have to read the Bible to know that's true. You can read the news to know that's true. Fragmented hearts living in a land of abundance, not pretty. Maybe here's a principle that we can hold on to. I'll, I'll repeat this a couple times this morning. The further we get from dependence on God, the more danger we are in. The further we get from dependence on God, the more danger we are in. That's what Moses is essentially saying. And it's ironic because they think they're coming into a place of, of plenty and, and, and abundance and they associate that with, I don't have to worry anymore. And Moses is saying, oh, you need to worry. You need to be careful. You need to be on your guard. Let's apply this to our context for a moment. We, we are here in greater, most of us, some are watching online from all over the place, but most of us are here in greater Nashville, Tennessee. It is the first part of the 21st century. We are living in a land of abundance that would explode the brains of the Hebrew people. In fact, our context here is unusual, even for most people in the modern world. I think a very fair question for us to ask ourselves is what kind of effect is that having on us? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer that question for me. But I invite you to consider how far removed we are from having to consciously depend on God for just about anything. Think about how many layers there are between you and real need. For most of you, not all, for most of you, there's a lot of layers between you and real desperation, real material need. I don't really have to ask God for my daily bread because I can just hop in my car and drive to any one of like eight grocery stores near my house and go on an aisle with, you know, 65 different varieties of all kinds of bread and grab something off the shelf and then go scan a machine and hold up a little piece of plastic to the scanner. And, and that just deletes a couple little digits from a bank account. And I'm not even aware of the loss of that, honestly. And I go home and eat my bread. You know, if I don't want to drive, someone will come to my door and bring me my bread. <laughs> 
that is a possibility. We tend to think of all these layers as insulation between us and real need. And, and we tend to think of these layers of insulation as protecting us from risk and from danger. But what if at some level, these insulating layers are the risk and the danger? The danger of living in a land of abundance is that it causes us to forget God. The second thing these verses reveal is God's purpose for the wilderness seasons of our lives. Look again at verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Here's the purpose clause. That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. I love that last phrase, to do you good in the end. You could apply that little phrase to every single thing God brings into your life. There is nothing God will bring into your life or allow into your life that he has not purposed to do you good in the end. So God used 40 years of wilderness in the, the lives of the Israelites to teach them to depend upon him one day at a time. That's the secret to walking with God. Depend on him every day, every step. You have to depend on him. The Israelites didn't have any other choice. That was God's design. Like for them, it was either depend on God or die. That was it. That's what the manna was all about. A whole generation of people learned to trust God this way, one day at a time. They could only take whatever manna they could eat that day and then it would spoil. Quick aside, some of you, uh, you and your family are in a wilderness season right now, or you have been. Um, you know, for some of you, these last 12 months, whether economically, financially, or, or relationally or otherwise, uh, have been awful. I want to encourage you this morning, thank God for the way he will use the wilderness to do you good in the end. There will be long-term fruit in your life, in the lives of your kids, if you've got kids, that would not be produced apart from what you're going through. Now, as Moses was speaking these words, you know, reminding them about the manna, he, he, he's speaking to, to a mixed congregation, so to speak. There are the old people that experienced all that. They're about to be gone. Like the whole generation was gone and a new generation is the one to enter into the promised land. So he's also speaking to the new generation. Here's the point. That generation that is young and growing up, they needed to have this lesson. They needed to, to have been passed on to the kind of faith and dependence that their fathers and mothers were forced to learn. Let's apply this principle to our parenting for a minute. 
Okay, and it's going to take a couple minutes, um, two or three, but we have to go here. How do we raise kids in a land like we live in? A land overflowing with milk and honey. Many of our kids have no idea what it's like to really trust God. Like, I was thinking about that. Jody and I were thinking about that. I don't think our daughters, not yet, they don't have any idea. They've not seen us materially, financially have to really trust God. You guys know where I'm going with this? This ought to give us a little pause. Okay, this ought to sober us up a little bit. We should be sober-minded when we realize our children are growing up in a place of abundance like this, where if we're not intentional, they'll never know who really provides for them. They'll never really understand what it's like to depend on God day to day. Here's the lesson. Often our instincts for our kids and what they need will take us in the opposite direction of what is actually best for them. I find this in my heart all the time. I thought about this scene in The Chosen Season 1, Episode 3. This little girl finds Jesus. He's camping out, you know, in his own little wilderness and he's preparing for his ministry and, and he's working with his hands as a carpenter and he's building some things with wood. And the little girl's like, what are you doing? You know, what are you building? And Jesus says, wealthy people love decorations and toys for their children. And the girl says, my family isn't wealthy. Jesus pauses and he looks at her and he has this half smile on his face and he says, many times that's better. The girl says, I don't know about that. And Jesus laughs. And then he says, you will. The further we get from dependence on God, the more danger we are in. Let's finish this passage. Listen to these words. They are for us this morning. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You know, Guys, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's going to be dying soon and they know it, but they still have the capacity to speak and share some things. They're they, they going to share the things that they believe are the most important things for you to hear and believe and live because they love you and they want life for you. And this is what Moses is doing. Like he's not trying to do some scary thing here. He, he's, he's saying, I solemnly warn you today, you shall surely perish, swallowed up by the abundance, swallowed up by the milk and honey all around you. Do you understand this? And this is God speaking through Moses, loving the people of Israel enough to warn them, loving us enough to warn us. I've been thinking this week about how complex this situation is from God's perspective. What do I mean by that? 
He loves these people so much and he's so generous. It's his nature that, that he's giving them this land. It's like he wants them to taste honey. It's like he wants them to have all this to overflowing. He wants all this for him. And yet he also loves them enough to know that it can destroy them. And so he loves them enough to, to be generous and give them the land and he loves them enough to give them a warning, you see. What an interesting tension God is in. This is the paradox of generosity from God's perspective. God could have made the world any number, any infinite number of ways. He chose to make it in this amazing, incredible abundance where there's, 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 there's more than our basic needs. He could have made human beings in an infinite number of ways. He chose to make us cultivators, you know, improvers, gardeners, inventors, creatives, fill in the blank. He designed us to cultivate the earth. And he designed us to, to do that by drawing out the raw resources that he built into the creation and then create everything you see around us. This is what mankind has done. It's actually remarkable what mankind has done as cultivators. Everything around us right now, from the ballpoint pen in your hand to the iPhone in your phone, uh, in your pocket, from uh, a cookies and cream milkshake to a Ford F-150, everything around us is here because mankind has cultivated the raw resources that God has embedded into the earth and, and God has given us the intellectual capacity and God has given us the creativity to do all this. However, by consciously creating us this way, and he did it consciously, intentionally, our generous God gave us an extraordinary power. Do you know what that power is? I'm not talking about the power to create now. God gave us the extraordinary power to forget him. We have the power to fool ourselves into thinking we don't need him because we got all the stuff. We have all we need. We can take care of ourselves. Here is a terrifying truth. You can forget God. He will let you. He will allow you to. And in he, even his allowance of this is according to his generosity, according of his love for you, according to what he desires. He does not desire for you to be a slave. He desires for you to be free. And yet, you can become so insulated by comfort and convenience, so distracted by technology and entertainment that God is hardly ever a thought on your mind. And if we're honest... Because we're living in a land of great abundance, it is likely that this has already happened. So I can't leave us there. We have to answer this question or, or at least probe into it enough to stir our minds. What is the solution to the problem of abundance? Is it, you go, go live as a monk somewhere and have only one tunic and, you know, be poor. What is the solution to the problem of abundance? There are a couple different angles we can approach this from. 
Number one, in the law of Moses, God gave the Hebrew people some guardrails to live in a land of abundance. He wanted them to live in a land of abundance and thrive in a land of abundance. So he gave them guardrails. What were the guardrails? Number one, the feasts and festivals were there to help the people remember God. It was a rhythm that remember God, remember where this stuff comes from. Number two, the tithing laws were there so that the people would learn to open their hands and not hoard selfishly everything. So God put some guardrails into the law of Moses to help them live in a land of plenty. But, but guys, they blew it. Just like Adam and Eve, of course they did. Why? Because their hearts were hijacked. Just as us. The real solution to the problem did not come until 1,500 years after Moses with Jesus. The problem of abundance is not abundance itself. The problem of abundance is the human heart. There's this one moment in the life of Jesus where this this very good and, and very wealthy man comes up to him and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to have life that never ends? And Jesus looks at this guy and he says, you know, well, here's some commands. And the guy kind of stops Jesus. He's like, no, I've done all these commands since I was little. And Jesus, the text literally says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. You'll store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. The man looked down, he turned around and he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. That has to be one of the most tragic stories in the gospels because here was a a sincere man who was asking for life. He's like, how do I find life? Like not just a little life, but life that never ends, fullness of life. And he's standing in front of the source of all life, God himself. Don't know if this man recognized that or not, probably not. But he came to the right man and he asked Jesus the right question and he got an invitation to become a disciple of Jesus. Guys, we would have known this man's name. And he turned away. Why did he turn away? Not from intellectual doubt, not from theological uncertainty. He turned away because of his stuff. It was his stuff. Why did Jesus ask him to sell all his possessions? He did not ask every disciple to sell all his possessions. Why did Jesus ask this man to sell all of his possessions? Because Jesus knew they were robbing this man of life. Wealth has a way of insulating our hearts from the disruptive work of transformation that Jesus wants to do. Wealth has a way of insulating our hearts from the disruptive work of transformation that Jesus wants to do. Money can be a great tool or it can be a great trap. For many of us, it's been a great trap. Jesus wants to transform our hearts so that money can become a great tool. So the solution, the solution to the problem of abundance starts with a commitment to follow Jesus. It doesn't even 
start with giving your stuff away. Jesus wanted this man to give his stuff away so that he could commit to following Jesus. They didn't have banks back then. He couldn't just like just leave his stuff. It was like he literally couldn't go unless he sold his stuff, but there was also something bigger going on in his heart. The solution to the problem of abundance starts with a commitment to follow Jesus. And then from there, Jesus will tell you what to do. The problem of many of us aren't taking following Jesus seriously. And part of the reason we're not is because all the stuff, it's like we're encumbered. It's like ankle weights around us. Here is the principle. If you seek life in Jesus, you will find it in abundance. If you seek life in abundance, you will always be lacking. I would imagine if Jesus was here right now and, and we were to say, Jesus, what does it take to have life, the kind of life that you envisioned for me, the eternal kind of life? He would look at us and he would love us. And for some of us, he would say, you need to lose some stuff. And then come follow me. That's an incredible invitation. Life awaits. Adventure awaits. What is holding you back? That's the question I want to leave you with. And so I'm going to invite the band to come out. And I'm going to put... Go ahead and put it on the screen. Just a few things to guide a prayer time. We're just going to give you about two minutes here in this prayer time. Just space. I'm not going to walk you through it. I'm just going to step off the stage in a minute. The band will be playing. And I want to invite you to contemplate these questions. These are hard questions. But, but guys, if you believe that God's Spirit speaks through His Word, which we do here at Fellowship, I hope you will open up your ears, open up your heart to hear the Spirit speak through this text as you consider, as you pray, as you commit yourself. Let's do this now together.